If you've joined the Convivial Society over the past two or three months, this installment requires a brief introduction. I'm always ready to acknowledge my extensive debts to an older generation of scholars and writers who have shaped my thinking about technology. Among those scholars, Ivan Illich has played an especially important role. The newsletter's title, for example, pays tribute to his Tools for Conviviality. So last summer, as we were growing accustomed to life in Zoom world, I began a newsletter-based reading group around Illich's work, and that group led to an ongoing series of conversations with some of Illich's friends and colleagues, all of whom have been extraordinarily generous with their time and encouragement. This installment, then, is the latest in that series. For over 30 years, David Cayley worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Company, producing numerous interview and documentary programs, including two programs devoted to Illich's work. The first of these also became the book Ivan Illich in Conversation, which remains an excellent introduction to Illich's thought. The second became Rivers North of the Future, which provides a sketch of Illich's unique and stimulating interpretation of the modern world. In our conversation, you will hear about the backstory to those interviews and about the relationship between Cayley and Illich, which took shape around them. And of course, you'll hear about a lot more too. You can also find the audio of the Illich interviews on Cayley's website, which includes a remarkable archive of his programs over the years. Notable examples include his interviews with George Grant, Charles Taylor, and Richard Sennett. Finally, Cayley is the author of a forthcoming intellectual biography of Illich, which I feel pretty confident saying will be the best guide to Illich's life and thought for years to come. Yvonne Illich, An Intellectual Journey, will be published this month by Penn State University Press, and you can order your copy at the University Press website. My conversation with Cayley follows earlier conversations with Carl Mitchum, Gustavo Esteva, and Governor Jerry Brown. I remain grateful to each of them, as I am to David Cayley, for their hospitality. I trust you'll enjoy the conversation. Remembering Illich, a conversation with David Cayley. Today, I'm very pleased to have David Cayley joining us to talk a little bit about Yvonne Illich uh, and David's own work. And so, David, thank you for coming on. Uh, so glad to have you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Um, and I, I think I want to start, I've, I've started in the past with the question, how did you meet Yvonne? But I think I want to postpone that just momentarily because you have produced um, a remarkable number of, of interviews through the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, over the years. And I, I've been especially interested in some of the subjects that you have interviewed have been of special interest to me. And I'm thinking of um, uh, George Grant and uh, Yvonne Illich, of course, but also Charles Taylor, and then even a subject of a documentary like Simone Weil. So these are all thinkers that, that have meant a lot to me. And I'm I'm curious about your choice of these thinkers and if there's a, a sort of a common thread or some interest on your part that led to these interviews and, and just what their genesis might have been. Well, I would say it was a dance between my interests and what I gained from the interview <laughs> subject. Um, so it, it wasn't just that I wanted this, this, and this. Meeting George Grant changed me changed uh, perhaps the questions I was asking. Mm. Uh, Ivan Illich is a <laughs> stronger case of that than mm -hmm. anyone else. But uh, so I think there's a, there's a dance, certainly. I should say that I was extremely lucky to work at Ideas at CBC Radio when I did under the executive producer I had, who was very uh, indulgent with so that as he allowed my interests to develop as they did and allowed me my head more or less uh, to follow where my interests led me. So I would say that the, there's a strong new age emphasis, if I can put it like that, in the work of the early 80s, which is progressively challenged then by seemingly anti-modern or thinkers, um, Grant, Illich, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it grows like that. I think my, my interests were always religious without really, without really wanting to use that word mm -hmm. uh, because 
in a certain way, the whole body of work is an interrogation of religion, asking what really we mean by it, right? Mm-hmm. Because in in modern times, religion is in a box, so to say, and I'm not really talking about religion in a box. So I, mm-hmm. in a way, I'm using a word which is convenient, but not the word I want to use mm-hmm. in saying that. But yeah. you could see there are religious and philosophical themes that run through. I can tell you a story that in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, I went to my executive producer and presented the idea of doing four series of programs, one with Ivan Illich, one with a Dutch jurist called Herman Bianchi, who was incorporating Old Testament themes into his practice as a legal scholar, Mm. Um, one with Simone Weil, and the fourth was um, René Girard. Mm -hmm. And I, I said to my executive producer, these are all, in a certain way, uh, contemporary receptions of Christianity. Mm. And he said, well, yes, good. You may do all those things. But when you're done, yeah, I hope you'll get back to more down-to-earth, <laughs> political. I don't know quite what he's, right. quite what he said. And I, I remember thinking, but this is down-to-earth. This mm-hmm. is political for me. This mm-hmm. is this is where the action is, is in this deep rethinking of modernity, not in uh, a proposal to move this chair over to here. Mm-hmm. Right. And let's move it back. So uh, I don't know if that gives an answer to your question. but you No, know, it certainly does. And I'm, I'm glad your, your producer indulged you uh, in, the, in these interviews. Um, I'll provide a link uh, in the... Um, uh, notes for this interview to to your website and to the uh, archive of, of interviews that you have linked up there. And, and certainly I've already encouraged them to, to take a listen, especially to the Charles Taylor interviews, which which are fascinating. So maybe then let's uh, go ahead and turn. You mentioned that Illich has, has had a significant impact on your own life and thinking. And so that, I guess that first question for me is, how did that come about? When, when did you first meet Yvonne or what turned you on to his work? Well, I started reading Illich in 1968 when I had just finished two years in the Canadian University Service mm-hmm. overseas, QSO, which, because Canada is Canada, one always has to introduce as the Canadian Peace Corps, even though QSO was founded before the Peace Corps <laughs> and not quite the same thing as the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, one has to say the Canadian Peace Corps to be understood. But mm-hmm. I lived two years in... Uh, East Malaysia, northern Borneo, mm-hmm. a little state of Malaysia called Sarawak, um, came back with many questions, uh, puzzled, I would say. And Illich was the one who really made sense of it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, and I began reading him and uh, was lucky enough to be able to go down to one of the First jobs I got was at Oxfam as assistant director of youth and education with the charge of taking some young Canadians who had been raising money for Oxfam to see Oxfam projects in Mexico. Mm. We were able to arrange to go to CDOC. So Ivan spoke to us. And the following year, uh, a group of returned CUSO volunteers who were critical of the development project. Uh, we got the opportunity to put on a large teach-in at the University of Toronto, which we called Crisis in Development. And Illich was our star attraction. He, mm-hmm. he consented to come. So he came and spoke in Toronto in 1970. And uh, we hosted him then. So that was the beginning of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see him again for... Well, I saw him once in Vancouver when he came to a lecture on medical nemesis. But um, it was 1987 before we reconnected. But he, I would say, was a very significant influence on me through every book that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. And and the the occasion for reconnecting in 87, uh, was, was this your tracking him down for the interview? 
Yeah, in 87, he, he was uh, invited here to a conference that was put on by the successors of uh, Marshall McLuhan at the University of Toronto mm-hmm. uh, on orality and literacy. Mm-hmm. And it brought together many of the most eminent people in the field. Walter Ong was supposed to come and became ill, but Eric Havelock was there, um, numbers of others, and um, Illich came. And he had just finished a book with that he wrote with Barry Sanders called ABC, mm-hmm. The Alphabetization of the Western Mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, I, I part of what I was to do was... Um, was to interview every participant in order to make a radio report mm-hmm. on on this on this conference, and Ivan was one of them. And, and I, I'm going to ask if you might tell the, the anecdote about the the initial failed recording. Um. <laughs> well, it's a it's a nearly unbelievable story, <laughs> but but I I accosted him and reminded him of our earlier. Earlier acquaintance, he reluctantly, uh, um, with I wouldn't even say graciously, but he <laughs> he agreed to an interview, which we did. And I, as far as I can remember, checked everything, tape turning, VU meter, all appeared to be recording. When I got back to my little studio, I found there was nothing on the tape. Now it's likely I made some error, right. but when when I approached Ivan again, um, sheepishly, he he intimated that he had hexed the recording, and that was that. <laughs> and and you know this his presence, which was a little a little magus like, uh, made this plausible enough. And so I had I was put in the bad position of having to dog him. Because I didn't want to do these programs without him. I just wanted that interview. And he made it difficult for me. And finally, I got to do it again. And the second interview was excellent. You can hear that in a series that's on the website uh, on where he gives his views on the literate revolution of the 12th century. And I asked him at the end of that interview, because it warmed up and we got... Mm -hmm. Uh, if he would consider allowing me to do a longer interview with him. And he said, no, that was out of the question. He hadn't done such a thing in a long time. And so, all right, that's it. (laughs) So the next day uh, after, well, since we have time, a very curious incident happened that day. It happened that in the last day of this conference, Jacques Derrida was invited mm. uh, because two conferences were merged for this mm. presentation by Derrida. And he gave, he, um, he lectured on a, a letter that had been written by Gershom Scholem to Franz Rosenzweig in Germany in the twenties mm. from the whole, from Palestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Illich had known Scholem at the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin in 1981 mm. when they were both on the faculty. And he took, he took against Derrida. Derrida could be quite cold in lecturing. Mm. And I don't know, Illich didn't like him touching this text. Mm. It's, an ex- it's an astonishing text in which Sholem says that if the, the sacred language of the Hebrew language becomes a language of bureaucracy and administration as, as inevitably it will in an Israeli state. An abyss will open beneath the people. It's striking. It's really striking. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, I don't know. Ivan didn't like Derrida touching this or at least deconstructing it or whatever he thought Derrida was doing with it. So, yeah. He was kind of boiling. I never did get an explanation. Interesting. Um, it's just one of those things that's a little seed that stays there. Yeah. But we went outside into the sunlight after these lectures and 
and um, my wife and uh, my three young children came to meet me. And Ivan looked at us. And then he said, you know, he came over and he said, you know, that proposal you made yesterday, you write to, would you write to my friend Wolfgang Sachs about it. Hmm. Okay. So I wrote to Sachs and, and, uh, got a strange letter back from Ivan, which looked like he had his fingers on the wrong keys of a typewriter. <laughs> but, but I could make out that he was inviting me to come. Mm-hmm to state college and more or less putting himself in my hands mm-hmm. so that he said he would be obedient. Mm-hmm. Um, the word, I had no idea what that word meant to him at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was only later that, that I learned that this single glance at, at my family and I uh, completely changed his orientation to the whole project. And out of that seed grew uh, uh, the radio series, Mm -hmm. which was put on ideas in 1988. And then the book, Ivan Illich in Conversation, Mm -hmm. uh, which I would say dramatically altered Illich's reception. Mm -hmm. uh, Just because of what people could understand by hearing his voice, even in print. Yes. It was very different than the, the the sort of compact or even some might say compacted rhetoric of some of yeah. his books. Um and it, it helped people and he was astonished himself. He never read it, I don't think, but he, <laughs> he said to me, um, you know, even old friends are telling me they understand me now. That's fascinating. <laughs> because of this book. And so anyway, that, yeah. was, that was the beginning of the whole adventure. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a that's a really interesting uh, insight. Just that last part about um, how these interviews maybe made made his work more comprehensible to some. I, I was recently talking to uh, Dana and Madhu, and I don't know how I can't remember the question how it came up, but it was about what what text with which one might introduce Yvonne's work to to others and. And I really like the transcript of the interview that he and Carl did on Jerry Brown's show. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think it's a wonderful short introduction to his work. And, and I wondered if, if it wasn't because of the interview format, that, that conversational format that somehow that, that made a difference that the writing can be dense and, and maybe challenging at various mm-hmm. points, but that the warmth of the interview, I think allows I don't know, the, the fullness of his personality would come out in a way that, that, that helps the reader. Yeah, I think that's yeah. true. So that, that book or that, the, the, essentially the transcript of that, uh, of those interviews became conversation, or Ivan Illich in conversation. Yes. Which I should say, uh, has a, a wonderful introduction that is my go-to source for sort of a, a, a biographical sketch of, of Ivan's life. And, that actually kind of leads me to ask, are, are you aware of other sources along those lines that if somebody wanted to sort of get just a, a sense of, of his biography? I, I, I know there is, um, the prophet of Cornavaca. I, I have not read it. I'm not sure if, if that's, um, the prophet of Cornavaca is a, it's a book I took strong exception to. Okay. Uh, I, I know the, I know its author, Todd Hart. I like him. Uh, we got on well when we met. I don't like the book very much, but I think it's it's a quite valuable historical source. Okay. Uh, so he, uh, Todd is an historian, mm-hmm. and he has traced out what the events of the 60s in Cuernavaca pretty thoroughly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very good source if someone okay. is interested in that. And that's the only period of Illich's life which has been documented in that way. And it might be the only period that could be documented in mm. that way. Interesting. Yeah. He himself was averse to biography. And once, um, once said to me that his biography would never be written. Um, and that he had taken steps to make sure that would not happen. 
Well, that's partly true. There, they, I think, CDOC was somewhat in his, the, the center he ran in Cuernavaca, mm-hmm, right. the Center for Intercultural Documentation, which operated under different names between 1961 and 1975, 76. Um, it was an institution under threat at times. Um, and so, so I think did kind of develop a habit of effacing their traces. There wasn't mm. much, there's a, there's a huge library of, uh, of work that was produced mm. there. They, they published an immense amount, but I think a lot of the other traces were effaced, but he, he, he didn't keep, there's not much of a paper trail if anybody mm. wants yeah. to do a biography and, and he he would for what it's worth he would be he would be against it right so. um can, and I also want to backtrack just a moment um to the conference in Toronto yeah uh, and uh, media ecology has also been a, an important part of how I think about um oh, technology really? oh. yes okay. yeah definitely and so I've you know every, each time I've um I've read I think in your introduction about that conference it um seemed like a wonderful moment and, and event to participate in. Um, but you mentioned Marshall McLuhan specifically, uh, obviously not being at that conference at that time. Uh, I, I was curious as to the, if you were aware, and I know that, and I'll mention now, we'll talk about this later, that you're working on a um, intellectual history of, or not history, an intellectual biography of, of Illich's work, if I may put it that way. And so I'm curious, if, do you know of, of um, any interest in Illich's in the, on the work of uh, Marshall McLuhan? I know that Walter Ong pops up um, and Havelock and, and Jack Goody. Illich met McLuhan. Okay. There was a man called Logan at the University of Toronto uh, who brought them together for an evening. Uh, so I know they spent an evening together mm-hmm. in the early seventies. Uh, I know, uh, that even sometimes quoted McLuhan. Mm. I don't know in detail how, how well he knew his work. Okay. Um, so, or indeed how well he knew that whole tradition. Mm-hmm. The Toronto school, so-called. Right? Yeah. Had he read Innes? Had he read Havelock? Not really sure. Okay. He certainly had uh, had talked to Walter Ong and had read some of Walter Ong. It sometimes it, you you sometimes had the impression that Ivan inhaled his influences rather than reading them. <laughs> if you if you know what I mean, <laughs> he was fast. But, yes. Yeah. He had was fast and he had a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I it's it's a quite difficult it's quite difficult to ascertain what he read and how much of it he read. Got it. That, but yeah. are, oh you can see there are some very scholarly books. I mean Right. The, the two most scholarly are probably limits to medicine, medical nemesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the vineyard of the text. Yeah. Uh, that was my introduction to, to Illich was in the vineyard of the text. Really? It was, it, it was, it was, um, unlike anything I was reading at the time, um, and really struck me, uh, and, and I, and I greatly enjoyed it. Um, and, and I had read, um, Walter Ong's work, uh, well, specifically morality and literacy just before that. And I had noted that Illich had been, had cited Ong on a handful of occasions in that text. And, um, and there was a, I, I wonder if it's fair to say, it, it sometimes seemed to me that, that Illich takes a turn towards maybe not media ecology very precisely defined, but towards these questions that are the sorts of questions that, that a, a media ecology takes up the question of the mediation of the senses and, and particularly with his, with, with regard to his interest in, in sort of the history of the human sensorium later, I think in the 1990s, maybe that's fair to say, but, but certainly with the alphabetization of the Western mind, there, there seems to be a turn there in, in his research interests. Uh, is, is that a fair way of characterizing the development? I, I would, I would say it like this. He says in 
this is in Illich in Conversation and the radio series uh, mm-hmm. called uh, Part Moon, Part Traveling Salesman, that he realized in the early 1980s that his world was passing over a watershed that he had not expected to observe in his lifetime. Those are his words. Mm-hmm. He came to the conclusion that most of his earlier work, the work of the 70s, mm-hmm. was premised on conditions that no longer obtained. Mm-hmm. This was his whole distinction that he developed mm-hmm. a little bit in his last work between the age of the, the age of instrumentality or the age of the tool, mm-hmm. the age of systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so his, he still thinks himself in de-schooling or tools or medical nemesis in a situation where he can imagine a political majority being assembled to change these what are still essentially tools, institutional means to mm-hmm. accomplish some mm-hmm. end. It makes sense then to speak about why these means behave counterproductively. Um, he begins to doubt that in the early 80s through this idea that a basically a change of mind is occurring mm-hmm. under predominantly under the influence of the computer Hmm. conceived in the largest sense, just that you would speak of print literacy in the largest Mm -hmm. sense, the, the, Mm -hmm. the the basic, uh, a new mind was appearing. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the beginning of all these studies, right? Mm since he was an historian and since he had said already at the beginning of shadow work that that would be his road and that he would try and shed light on the present by investigating the past, um, he was going to look into earlier epochs in the history of literacy uh, and orality. And, and that I think so it's striking, uh, since you admire it in the vineyard of the text, that he says there that he doesn't intend to make a learned contribution, <laughs> yeah. but only hopes to shed some light on the present situation. Mm-hmm. With a book about the 12th century. Right. Um, it's interesting. Now, I think he, he's, he's very excessively modest there. I think in the vineyard of the text makes a huge learned contribution, which is still not recognized, Mm -hmm. which is that he claims that many of the things that McLuhan or Eisenstein associate with the Gutenberg revolution are actually occurring in this scribal revolution, Mm -hmm. which he writes about uh, in, in the vineyard of the text, which I think is, underappreciated as a scholarly contribution. But nevertheless, what he says is he doesn't want to make a scholarly contribution. He wants to shed light on the present conjuncture. So this is his way of, of, of of bringing to light, um, how different things can, you know, and then Hugh is his paradigmatic figure standing on this cusp in the 12th century, looking forwards and backwards. At the same time, which is how he sees himself, I think. So, so by tracing the the transition from monastic to scholastic reading, he means to shed light on on our own transition from uh, the world of print to the to the world of digitization. Yes, yes, yeah. uh, not that he thinks it's the same thing, right? I think it's more to a you know this is a. Yeah, this be, becomes a tricky point, but he is writing about the 12th century. It's right. not a coded text about the right. 20th century. But if you understand what happened there, you begin to think perhaps differently about what's happening now. And he sees, of course, in the 12th century, all these uh, roads not taken, if you like. Mm-hmm. Right, what the university 
might have been as mm -hmm. opposed to what the university became and so mm -hmm. on. Yeah. And there are a lot of traces of this as well um, in Rivers North of the Future. It's a, it's a recurring theme there, the, the changes of transitions that were happening in the, in the 12th century. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and this becomes um, really important by way of perspective. I mean, it, it seemed to me that there was some sense maybe in the early 80s um, or, or by the late 70s, again, in, in sort of thinking about his earlier work, it's as if he seems to think that that he he wasn't getting deep enough into the sources of, of sort of the Western mentality or mindset um, that somehow needed an even deeper um, or what's the word I'm looking for an even more contrasting perspective. I mean, he he seeks it in in Southeast Asia to some degree, but that right that doesn't quite work out the way he intends, and and so turning to the 12th century is, is, is a way of immersing oneself in a world so different that then our, our own present is illuminated by the contrast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but this is a world in which he had inhabited um, for quite some time. That he comes to the United States to study uh, the writings of, of Albert the Great. Yeah. So this is a longstanding preoccupation in a sense. I think it is. Yes, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. 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 The, the, if I may ask you, you may have some insight into this. Um, the, there's this curious, um, thing about alchemy that seems to be, uh, a, a, a minor thread that's never quite developed in some, at least in some of his early work. What, what interested him? Do you know what, what was so fascinating about Albert Magnus and and alchemy that it it keeps sort of showing up popping up occasionally later on well it you're certainly right that it is it's amazing how often alchemy is used as a metaphor in shadow work mm -hmm. perhaps still in gender a little bit uh, in the writings on education mm -hmm. right um that that this is becomes a a figure for some sort of magical transformation, mm -hmm. right? But what he really, what Albert's alchemy, I haven't looked into this myself, so I've read a little bit of Jung on, on medieval alchemy, where the idea is more fully developed, mm -hmm. but, but I, I, I would, to know some some scholar needs to go and do this read albert and then try and connect that to to what illich is interested in but certainly it's a major metaphor for him of the underlying faith if you can call it that of hmm. modernity interesting that we will that we will be trans you know yeah so he describes labor, the labor theory of value, he describes as alchemy, hmm. right? Not just the labor theory of value in Marx, but as yeah. it develops from Locke onwards, it's, it's a mysterious transformation that is occurring of, of which alchemy seems to be in his mind, the mold. Hmm. Right? So that's about all I, I yeah. Know. Yeah. It's a fascinating little tantalizing little illusion or, or illustration that you know, sort of begging to be teased out a little bit it seems and if we might then i wonder if um you could tell us a little bit about the origins of rivers north of the future and what prompted you to to want to get this down uh the material in that in that book which is your again another series of conversations with with illich well i would say it has it has biographical roots with me. So that may be the first thing to say yeah. that I, I, I grew up, uh, steeped in Anglican Christianity. Mm. And I think one of the first things that maybe made Ivan think I was the man he wanted to have as his amanuensis or whatever I was 
was I told them a story about uh, when I had been living in Sarawak in, in Malaysia, as I mentioned earlier. I, I be, was so preoccupied with the contradictions in scripture that I had drawn up this big chart, which, which, you know, itemized mm-hmm. this statement contract, you know, contradicts this. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I think I had lived this life of uh, a Christian, not a Christian. Mm-hmm. for a long time and just one quick story I, when I was in Vancouver from time to time I would return to the church and I was in one such phase in Vancouver in 1975-76 and I came home from church and my <laughs> my wife said how come you're always in a worse mood when you come home from church than when, when you go and uh, and that that was an important moment for me. Because that's a fair question. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be able to answer that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, well, it's because I'm I'm fighting with it. Mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with it all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you know, later when my father was old, I was often at church with him, and I would find. Then, I mean, you know, I might be in tears one moment and in this embattled, mm-hmm. you know, questioning posture the next. So that, that ambivalence, if you call it that, mm-hmm. is there when Ivan says to me at the end of the interviews that became part moon, part traveling salesman, and then the, then Ivan Nelich in conversation. The book actually ends with a later interview that was done relating to his view mm-hmm. about life, which we could talk about if you wanted. But mm-hmm. the the end of the first interview was him dropping this bomb, which is to say that the whole of Western history can be summed up in his opinion in the saying, corruptio optimi pessima. Mm-hmm. Oh, Western history? <laughs> So this was uh, astonishing to me. I had never heard any such thing. And I think, you know, Charles Taylor, who was an invaluable ally later on in, in bringing the Rivers North of the Future mm-hmm. to public attention, he writes in his little preface to the book that Illich is bringing a new light here. He's mm-hmm. not, it's not, modern anti-modern right this idea of perversion or corruption Mm -hmm. is a different idea and the phrase for i was just going to say the phrase for for listeners who may not be up on their latin right is the 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 corruption of the no it's quite all right the corruption of the best is the worst right yes exactly yeah it's an old proverb you can as i discovered you can find it any you know in many many Mm -hmm ancient and medieval and uh, later sources but I was so seized by it that I just wanted to know more I Mm -hmm. I, I saw it as the key to his whole enterprise I immediately I saw it as the direction I wanted to go with him Mm -hmm. and so but I mean, I was at the end of an eight day interview, which I never <laughs> thought would happen in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. We'd been talking for eight mm-hmm. days. I had to go home and leave him alone. Mm-hmm. And so it was only when he, a year later, called and said, I'm coming to Toronto. Can I stay with you? Mm-hmm. That I realized that this was going to become a friendship. This wasn't just a one off. Mm-hmm. And we got to talk a lot and, I got to say, you know, this is what I want to talk to you about. This mm-hmm. And he he said, I've related this in, in the book, that he said, well, yeah, next time I see you, you know, I'll bring you several chapters to this end on this subject. Mm-hmm. Well, there never were any chapters. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of reasons for that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um which some of which were 
were personal. He was in pain. Mm. Uh, he had a lot of demands on his time. There were a lot of people who uh, were in his world that made demands on him. And I think there was also a reticence to discuss the theme, which was important because some of the people who were closest to him felt this theme was explosive, let's say. Mm -hmm. That it was really um, one strong voice in that regard was an old nun by the name of Mushka Nagel, sister of Jerome she was. at the, She lived at the Abbey of uh, Regina Laudis in Connecticut, mm. an old friend of Ivan's. And Mushka was very strong that this was no time uh, to be talking this way because, I mean, if you think back what had happened in Boston, the reputa- the Catholic Church was in crisis, mm-hmm. right? And the whole institution, uh, to her mind, was was teetering. So for Ivan then to come and discuss this theme of the corruption of the best is the worst in public seemed to her most unwise, most imprudent. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying he agreed with that, but I'm saying those voices were, were yeah. in his ears. So it, it took a few years uh, before I finally said, look, this is never going to happen. You know, and one way we could do it is if I came back with my microphones and we did another big interview and he agreed. Uh, and so over, this was now like two weeks, <laughs> my interviews are getting longer and longer um, in, in, um, in the Okotopec in the outskirts of Cuernavaca. He more or less dictated that mm-hmm. became the reverse north of the future. And then a, a couple of years later, I, I, I got, I found an opportunity to go back and we, we did a second set of conversations, which mm-hmm. were more interview style. And then there was a whole other period of debate as to whether this should, since it had been on the radio, but, you know, a radio documentary in Canada can be fairly ephemeral. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. going to ever become part of the scholarly record. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, so the idea of making a book, it took another couple of years of discussion mm-hmm. before he could see that, yes, this was good. So that's the story of the book. And I think Charles Taylor played a huge role mm-hmm. because he... He and I had known each other, and he, I had been the producer for his Massey lectures, mm-hmm. which, um, since people outside of Canada may hear this, are a, a national lecture series mm-hmm. on the CBC. We, we did that together in, in uh, 1990, I think it was. So he called out of the blue and said, I'm listening to these. These were the broadcasts um, in 1988. And I'm astonished uh, at how close this is to what I'm thinking about and developing. And he was then doing the Gifford Lectures, which became his big book, A Secular Age, came out in 2007. Mm -hmm. I think he had not seen that affinity with Illich when we first Mm -hmm. knew each other. And so he graciously agreed to introduce the book and... Mm -hmm. He's a, a man very well known. I think it's not too much to say in the Western world and maybe even in other parts of the world. Yeah. And his imprimatur on uh, what was by then a fading reputation, let's yeah. say. Right. I think Ivan hadn't found, people remembered him and so on, but I think he hadn't found much echo, much resonance mm-hmm. for his later work. And that's a story which hinges on gender. But anyway, so the fact that Taylor endorsed The Rivers Not of the Future, I think brought it into other hands. And, and so mm-hmm. it began to happen that I would hear from young theology students, right, who were interested in Illich. 
the resonance was pretty obvious with radical orthodoxy, for example, mm-hmm. the, the basically English theological movement centered on right. John Milbank and Catherine Pickstock's and Graham Ward's work. So yeah, through the rivers north and the future, Illich came into a, a contemporary theological conversation that he mm-hmm. had, I think, had not anticipated, and you know, or at least was not part of. Mm-hmm. In the last ten years of his life, there, I mean, there's so many fascinating aspects of that book. Um, you know, it's, it's an argue, it's a long argument, um, but at the same time, there are individual segments of it that seem that they can just sort of shoot you off and into mm-hmm. very interesting intellectual paths. And um, and I and I was struck um, by the earlier chapters on contingency. And his sort of negotiation of the turn towards the the importance of of the divine will in uh, late medieval philosophy and how that sets the stage for for transformation in sort of the Western imagination and how that seemed to anticipate some of the work I had the radical orthodoxy hadn't come to my mind uh, but certainly that that sort of neo Thomist history of the development of the West that puts so much emphasis on focus on on the divine will imbalanced from one perspective in a sense the view of god that then generates modernity along certain paths uh to find mm-hmm. that encapsulated so neatly in in those early chapters on contingency was was striking and and i i've thought and i wonder if you if you think it would be fair to say this it rivers north seems to almost act as a as a as a retrospective commentary on his earlier work it, it, it almost unearths themes that were latent uh, or that maybe um like it's not the best word that that weren't obvious with someone were to just pick up tools or de-schooling that even in de-schooling you get to talk about the the disestablishment of schools as if it were a kind of religious institution yes yeah. i think if if it's I wouldn't, I wouldn't say latent because if you read de-schooling society now, it's amazing how often he speaks of it as a world church. Yes. As a form of religious service. Um, it's really, it's really there in the open, but in a way not picked up. The critics are all, um, there's a in in my new book, which is just coming out. There's a long, I've spent some time on the critical response to de-schooling society because it's it's pretty interesting, and it was the most sustained engagement with Illich that that ever took place. Right? There were many many res- responses, but almost none of them noticed that aspect of it. Right? That he saw school as having a liturgical function, although it's mm-hmm. explicit in his text. Mm-hmm. And he saw it as a myth-making ritual, mm-hmm. uh, although it's explicit in his text. Right. Uh, these things just were not picked up, I think. And, you know, even in, now it's more, it's less, it's less so in, in Tools for Conviviality. Mm-hmm. It's true. One of the underlying themes that I derive from Ilch's work that I find so valuable is this way of thinking about how we might we might better think about the world as a gift? At least this is how I some, sometimes tend to summarize it. And in the closing essay of uh, de-schooling, um, where he contrasts the Promethean and the Epimethean, and then even in sort of then later, and I guess this was the connection um, in in those chapters on contingency. The idea that the world is, is gratuitous, uh, that's not chance. It's, it's, it's a different thing than, than just chance, but there is a giftedness to the world that we fail to, to recognize or to appreciate. And that in, in contrast to that, we're, we're positioned as manipulators of the world, seeking, uh, control and mastery. I think of the, the there's a line in a Wendell Berry poem that, uh, we live the, the given life, not the planned. And I've, I've sometimes thought that that's such a, a, a neat way of summarizing what I take to be one of the central concerns of Illich's work. It, does that ring true to you? You know, is, is that, is that an overriding concern for him? 
Yes, I, I think it absolutely is an overriding. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I can improve on what you've said really, but I, I think it is, um, yeah, that, that is his sense of the age of instrumentality is that it drives gratuity to the margins and indeed makes gratuity a word for something unnecessary. <laughs> right. <laughs> something that's gratuitous. It's something that we don't even, beside the point, right? Right. right. Get down to brass tacks here. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, and one of the sweetest things he says about the present moment is that for those who can take the opportunity as one age loosens its grip and the new age of systems, as he calls mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. hasn't fully tightened its grip, that there is a, a new appreciation of the of gratuity of the fact. Interesting. I couldn't have expected this. Yeah. Right? Surprise. Uh, to to be able to talk to you. It, it yeah, that we can never I mean I think this is this is absolutely crucial for him. Mm-hmm. It, it takes the I think surprise is a very important word mm-hmm. in English. And surprise very often is a way of speaking of the messianic in a in a without mentioning a possibly divisive mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Um, but surprise, if you analyze it, can only occur when you haven't expected mm-hmm. uh, what what comes. And and it's astonishing how much of our existence is is devoted to guaranteeing that what comes is what we have compelled to come. Mm-hmm. That what we have expected and, and sure will come. Um, and we're going to make sure that all the unwanted things never come again. Right. As, as currently, right. as currently. And so, um, and, and if that is, is, is a complete regime, then nothing can speak to us from outside of it. Mm-hmm. And indeed the diagnosis of systems that he makes laterally, I think is, is an inside with no outside. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, a world which can't deaf to it all but its own, the sound of its own voice. Mm-hmm. And, but yes, giftedness is, is a way of speaking of that. And there is such a personal quality to that. Um, you know, so much of this, um, often goes back to this interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and, and the, the freedom of them in that moment to, to answer a call that, the social stricture of the age would not allow, but that it's in that personal encounter. Um, it, it's in the gaze of the other that we receive the gift of ourselves, you know, his emphasis on, on the threshold that we cross and, and even his practice um, of hinging so much of, of his work on friendships. Uh, you mentioned, you know, his, his willingness to obey and to, yeah. and to submit to this. Um, yeah. And that it seems that his, a lot of his courses is, of his life is driven by these relationships and, and by friendships. And it seems like some, a, a way of, of conceiving of human relationships that is sorely needed. And it certainly, it inspires his work is clarifying and illuminating, but then this emphasis on friendship, I think almost takes it to a different level and it's, it inspires something and I'm wondering if, if you might just comment, um, on the experience of, of, of being Illich's friend. And if that's not too personal, if I may ask that, what you take away from that, uh, or what you remember? Well, it's impossible to answer, of course, but I told you the story about what happened outside Emmanuel College in the sunlight on a Sunday afternoon. He looked at my family and I mm-hmm. and, and um, changed his mind. And he not only changed his mind, he changed his life because I made a lot of demands on him. And 
um, really, I think, just by the way things went, not speaking with any vanity about it, changed the reception of his work. Um, and he left that to the moment to decide. Uh, if that moment had not occurred, mm -hmm. it might all have been different. There would never have been those programs. There never would have been that book. There never would have been the rivers of the future, perhaps. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But to let everything turn on a moment is is the essence of the messianic idea. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of fun being Ivan's friend. Um, and it was a, it was a beautiful adventure. But what it taught me was that I could, to an extent, live like that. Now I was a, a family man with a, you know, position more or less at the CBC. So uh, I, 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 my life had a stability that that um whereas he was a wanderer right and to an extent a wild card mm -hmm. and um but you know whenever he came near enough for me to reach him i i wanted to go and and uh yeah those were very those were very good times so I don't know what more I can say. Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, it, it, um, well, I'll tell you a story since we're speaking yeah. personally. Um, I, it happened, uh, a month ago that I, um, began to develop symptoms of angina, mm. um, heart troubles and, through various pathways, I was led into a hospital where I had an angiogram, which is investigation of the vessels mm -hmm. leading to the heart. And they discovered sufficient blockages that they checked me into the hospital and said they wanted to do bypass surgery within a day or two. I was completely overwhelmed by this. I, I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't, I didn't even know how to think about it. But there I was in a hospital bed in the heart ward and my wife, Yuda, cycled down to see me. And on the way she talked to Ivan. I, I don't want to go all mystical on you, but. Mm -hmm. But she felt Ivan was with her, and and uh, through her coming to the hospital, I was able to recover. Gradually came back into myself, and uh, ended up checking myself out of the hospital. Uh, and so, whether I will eventually have this surgery or not, I, I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps I will. Uh, but that's not the point. The point is he's a very, very uh, real and living presence uh, mm -hmm. in our lives. Uh, mm -hmm. So, thank you for sharing that. And, and that's uh, that's that's you know that's through Yuda, uh, but it's the same for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like he's, uh, and you know we do keep one another in that way. So, yeah. Thank you. But he was, yeah. he was my gift. Um, what, I want to make at least, uh, give an opportunity for you to tell us about your forthcoming book. When well, is that? The book is, is, so I was going to hold it up to you, but <laughs> the, I had a note from UPS this morning saying it wouldn't be delivered till Monday. Uh, so evidently it's printed. And my copies are on the way. So I hope your copy will be on the way 
soon. And then, and then a lot of, so, all right. How long have I got? As uh, long as you want. The, the, the rivers north of the future is an astonishing text. I, I'm amazed that he could just say those things. Yeah. But it is also, as he emphasizes again and again, a sketch. Mm-hmm. A research program, he says, a hypothesis, he says. It's various ways of of indicating the provisional tentative character of what he's saying. What he's saying, in my opinion, is utterly revolutionary. It's a questionable word, revolutionary. What does it mean? He is basically inviting us to go back to the very beginning Mm -hmm. and to understand what we've been given differently, that we can never own this, that we can never control it, that we can never fully institutionalize it, Mm -hmm. even though we can't live without institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, There is another future north of the future and but it 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 calls on a new understanding and it calls on a very difficult taking apart of what has been made right mm. what we take for granted what surrounds us and what overwhelms us uh, from day to day which is mm. the sheer weight of what we've made and mm. it's it's weight is as heavy on the world as it is on us. And it seems that only a handful of people perhaps will ever in our time get free of its toils because maybe a new monasticism of some kind is, is, is what is, is developing. Uh, you know, what did Benedict and his brothers think they were doing exactly? They didn't, you know, if you can argue, if it's plausible to say that monasticism was the seed of the whole Western church and the whole modern catastrophe, not to blame Benedict for it, (laughs) um, you know, who, who knows what, what we, we may be in now here, but at least Illich invites whoever is interested, I think, to, to try to think this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I more or less knew that I'd been given a very costly gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we did those interviews, and that was 20 years ago, that's more than, that's nearly 25 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, the fir- that we did the first one. So the book is my, answer. It's my attempt to see him whole, um, remembering remembering his strictures on biography, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that what is between you and I or me or you and anyone else is, is shaded from all other eyes, that there is no, we have no ability uh, nor is it good for us to to pretend to be above one another to see mm-hmm. what he calls the mysterious the mysterious historicity of each one mm-hmm. right so i haven't tried to stand above him mm-hmm. i've tried to or i've told some stories which i think are, are stories that should be told there are many stories i haven't told and but it it is it is an attempt to carry on this conversation and to make to open his thought to more people uh and and to yeah to go on from there yeah. so it's called uh Ivan Illich, an intellectual journey that's not what i called it 
It was originally called A Candle in the Dark uh, because he was very, very fond of candles. Yes. Yeah. And often had a candle on the, always had a candle on the table. And I, I saw him that way, but uh, the yeah. Penn State press thought that was a little too new age. And yeah. so that's a shame. Wanted, they wanted to hint at an intellectual biography, which right. is fair enough. It, it, it is an intellectual yeah. biography of a kind. Right. And right. Uh, yeah, so it's ready to go out into the world. Excellent. Well, I, I very much look forward to it. We can talk more about it after. Um, after you've read it, I'd be delighted to. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly. Good. Thank, thank you so much.